Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, listen, I am so excited to get to be with you this morning. And uh, if you are a guest, uh, we do wish you an extra special uh, welcome to worship uh, with us here at uh, New Beginnings. And just to get started, uh, I just want to ask a question and ask you in your response to this, just to be honest with me this morning. I feel like you have to because it's Easter Sunday and you're in church, all right? So let me just ask by show of hands, how many of you would say that at some time uh, you have battled or at least been aware of uh, some anxiousness that you have felt about uh, someone or something? Anybody ever suffered from a little anxiety? Yes, that's pretty much every hand in the room. The rest of you haven't come to grips with it, and that's fine. Uh, We're praying for you, all right? But here's the thing. All of us uh, suffer at times Uh, from anxiety. There's just different things that make us anxious. Sometimes we're anxious about our health or our finances or uh, a relationship. As parents, we can be anxious about our children. In fact, there's a very real uh, type of anxiety that I don't believe you have actually walked in parenting until you have experienced, which is separation anxiety. All parents know a little bit about separation anxiety. Some of you have experienced it uh, this morning. I don't think you've lived as a parent until you've had to peel a kid off of you and leave them somewhere. I can remember when my son Coleman, my second born, was heading off to preschool uh, for the first time. And uh, he just had separation anxiety. He was just very close. Coleman's wired like me. He's a homebody. And so he was just uh, very uncomfortable with the first uh, day drop off of school. We had had a lot of pep talks leading up to it. I felt like I had given him the Newt Rockney uh, locker room speech, getting him psyched up and ready uh, to, to go to school. And so there we are. And we walk in uh, to preschool. And I mean, the, the wheels just came off. We were a sight to see. In fact, other parents were like, how can we pray for you? You know, we were a mess, okay? There was crying, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, there's snot going everywhere. Now listen, I have no idea if Coleman was upset. I'm talking about Mary. This was a, this was a disaster, okay? This was a disaster. In fact, this is true. When my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's 15 now, but when she was about three weeks old, I remember we were just... Uh, getting the hang of newborn parenting. And you know what that's like, right? It's, it's exhaustion and sleeplessness and nothing is working. And so um, I remember one day I'm back at work and Mary calls me and she's sobbing hysterically. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, she's going to leave. <laughs> she's going to leave. And I'm like, uh, what, what is, babe, what is, catch your breath. What is wrong? Where are you? And she was like, I just drove past an elementary school and saw kids going to kindergarten. She's going to leave. <laughs> okay, crazy. <laughs> this, this separation anxiety is a, it's a real thing, isn't it? But here's what I would tell you about all types of anxiety, even the type we giggle about and some of the type that we, that we don't. I, I think anxiety in and of itself is actually a revelation that there is a greater or a deeper longing in all of us. There's an angst 
uh, for, for something that I believe you and I just sometimes have a hard time putting our finger on or defining exactly what that is. Let, let me see if I can explain. So if you read your Bible from the beginning to the end, it's just incredible story, this love story of God about the way in which he is pursuing us as his uh, created people. And, and the, the, the Bible's going to tell us that when God created in the very beginning everyone and everything, that he stepped back according to Genesis 131 and looked at his creation and the words of God were that, behold, it is very good. So God saw all that he had made and he said, man, it is, this is good. He, here's what he thought was good. He thought the relationship between uh, creation uh, was working right and that that was good. He thought the relationship between Adam and Eve was working right and that that was good. He knew that the relationship between Adam and Eve and him was working right and that that was also good. In fact, the Bible says very good, but I, I think if we were just being honest, we would admit that at times... Things aren't always very good, are they? Like the truth is, that's the reason why we have this anxiousness within us. Sometimes it's angst we giggle about, but sometimes it's angst that we don't. And, and, the, and the, the deal is, is that it's not, always very, it's not always very good. But that's not how God intended for it to be. Like sometimes the relationship that creation has with itself isn't good. We have natural disasters and mass shootings. There's acts of terrorism. There's theft. There's cancer. I mean, sometimes creation isn't all that good. What about the relationships with one another? Sometimes they're not always that good. We have uh, divorce and murder and adultery and gossip and slander. It's not always very good. Even the relationship we have with God, if we were being honest. And again, it's Easter Sunday, so I think we have to. It's not always very good. There's times or seasons when we can be apathetic toward God. I've even uh, been guilty of cursing uh, God. There is agnosticism in an attempt to deal with God, or universalism in an attempt to try to work around God, or pluralism in an attempt to somehow include a little bit of God. It's all this angst because things aren't the way they should be. Something's changed. Listen, if God stepped back and said, man, behold, it is very good. But you and I, being completely honest with ourselves, would admit the anxiety is a revelation that sometimes it isn't. What changed? Something went very wrong to go from very good to the condition where we admit we find ourselves to be at times today. Well, the Bible's going to say that God uh, established Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then he gave them some rules by which they were uh, to live. After all, if he's the creator, it's his prerogative to instruct the creation on how they are to steward all that God has given for them uh, to enjoy. And, and yet, that's not what happened. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's uh, design for things, and the Bible says in a moment, the world, the creation, the cosmos was introduced to a small three-letter word that the Bible would tell us is called sin. 
sin. Now, I think, if we're, I think sin is hard to sometimes define. Like there's a lot of us who define sin differently. So I had to do some investigation. And Merriam-Webster's dictionary helped me with this definition of sin. It says this, that sin is a transgression against the law of God. But it went further, and this is where I found it to be most helpful. It said it is a spoiled state of human nature in which the self is estranged from God. Now that's it for me. That makes the most sense. That our sin, our rebellion against God, the transgression against God's law, has left us now estranged from God. There is this sin separation that all of us have because God is entirely good and perfect. Remember, he stepped back and said, it's very good. But since the introduction of sin, you and I are living in this world that we would acknowledge just sometimes is not. And therefore, there's this estrangement, there is this separation that exists because of the introduction of sin. And here's what I want to be honest with you about. Uh, In this room this morning, we have a wide variety of representation. Like, there's a lot of us with varied backgrounds, some of us with different levels of income, different levels of education, different ethnicities represented, different accents. I mean, have you heard some of you talk? Okay. But listen, despite the wide variety of representation, the one commonality that we all share, every one of us in every chair in this room and in overflow as well, is that we're all sinners. Everybody in this room has the one thing in common, that little three-letter word, sin. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I don't know about me. Yes, and the evidence is that you thought that. All of us are sinners. In fact, the Bible would say this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, to help summarize an understanding that this is a common factor to every person everywhere. The Bible would say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, the reality that is common to all of us. And so the question is, well, if God created it as very good, but sin has changed it so that it is not, And now there is this separation that our own anxiety would reveal, hardwired into our own heart. Man, something's just not right. Then what are we supposed to do? Like, how is this dilemma of sin going to be overcome? Well, listen, again, because God loves us and the entirety of his word is a love story uh, to us, then, then you will see that God made divine provision even from the very beginning, from the moment in that Garden of Eden when sin was introduced and everything that he had made is very good suddenly changed and left us in the condition where we find ourselves today, God spoke of a divine provision that would come and it would one day overcome that sin separation and that the estrangement which we acknowledge exists or the angst in all of our hearts would be lost forever. The Bible would say it this way in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. It would say that the wages of sin is death But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Here's what's interesting about that. I think it deserves a moment of explanation. Everybody knows what a wage is, right? A wage is an earning. It's a a, a deserved payment. Well, the Bible is going to say that the earning or the deserved payment for our sin, our rebellion against God, is death. 
It's what we have earned. So if your wage is $10 an hour, you work 40 hours a week, then the wages you have earned that week are $400. Well, listen, because of our rebellion against how God made things as very good, what we have earned for that, the Bible would say, is, is death. But the second half of that verse is where I find the true miracle of God. The second half of that verse is what the Bible would call in other places uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ or the good news of God because it's going to say what we've earned is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, God has given us this free gift. It's the divine provision that he actually spoke of in the garden when things went really, really bad. What we earned is not what we received. The wage that you and I have accrued for the debt of our sin, which is an offense against our creator God, it is not what we receive. Instead, that gift, that free gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But then you have to ask the question, okay, so what happens to the wage? Like, wh like what happens to the earning? This is what we deserve, so what happens to that balance that has been accruing for our sin debt against God? Listen, if God is perfect and just, and he must be, because Genesis 131 said when he stepped back and saw all that he had made, he spoke and said it was very good. So if he is perfect and just, then how does he perfectly and justly deal with the wage that you and I deserve for our sin. Well, here's how. Because Jesus paid it. Listen, and that's the miracle of Easter. Despite all of the ham we're going to eat this afternoon, the deviled eggs that you're going to have around your family table, the eggs that are going to be hunted by the little ones, the baskets that are going to be celebrated and, and found. Listen, this is the miracle of Easter. That there was a, a debt that was paid for a wage that you and I earned. And so with that as the backdrop, let me just ask you or invite you to grab your Bibles and go with me to Mark chapter 15. To the New Testament gospel of Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to look on with your neighbor. Of course, we always put a copy of the scriptures up on the screen behind me. If your neighbor won't share with you and you live with them, you need to set an appointment with us, okay? Mark chapter 15, we're going to start reading together in verse 33. And if you haven't been here in the last several weeks, let me just catch you up on where we have been. As a church family, we've been examining the Passion Week of Jesus. So what was it like the last several days leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection? And here's what we've seen. That Jesus, about a week ago, had this parade of sorts, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In fact, uh, people were laying down palm branches before him as he rode in, and they were screaming out shouts of Hosanna. It literally translates to meet God save us now. And so Jesus had this uh, just profound moment, this parade as he was entering into the holy city of Jerusalem. And then a few days later, he gathers together with his uh, disciples and they're going to celebrate the Jewish festival of Passover. And so they're in this upper room in a house there in Jerusalem. And one of the men who was actually one of the 12 disciples, uh, a person who had been with Jesus for three years, seeing him perform all of the miracles and do Jesus, seeing Jesus do all of the incredible things that only God can do. A man named Judas actually sold Jesus out and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. 
This led to the ruling religious elite of that day actually imprisoning Jesus and falsely accusing him of a crime he did not uh, commit. But Jesus had like some very best friends that were a part of his inner circle. So there were the 12 disciples, and then there were three men, Peter, James, and John, who I would argue were Jesus' very best friends. And, and so in this moment when Jesus needed his friends uh, the most because one of his own disciples has sold him out for some silver, then Peter's back is against the wall, and he denies knowing who Jesus is. So can you imagine, this is where Jesus has been, celebrating this incredible uh, moment uh, with his disciples only to be sold out uh, by one of the 12, and then just a few hours later uh, being denied by one of his very best friends in life, and then he is falsely imprisoned, uh, wrongly condemned, and ultimately Pontius Pilate, the local governor of Rome, Uh, sentences Jesus to an execution, it would be a death by crucifixion on a cross. And so this is where we find ourselves. Jesus has had his hands spread out across a, a piece of wood and a spike driven into each one. His legs have been overlapped and a single spike driven through both feet. And they've stood that cross up on its It's about 9 a.m. in the morning. It was a very public and humiliating form of execution. And remember, Jesus is dying a death that he did not earn or deserve. So this is where we find ourselves in the story today. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, let me give you uh, that word darkness as one uh, to circle. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is a powerful, uh, miraculous moment. This moment when darkness uh, falls over the land is actually just one of about six miracles that scholars tell us take place during the crucifixion of uh, Jesus. Jesus was nailed to that cross at 9 a.m. It gets stood up on its end and then uh, between 9 a.m. and noon is when the sky record uh, the the Bible records the sky uh, turning uh, dark, and and in this moment, these three hours where Jesus is hanging here in the daylight, the Bible says he's being judged by the very men he came to save. The judgment of Jesus was that he was mocked, he was scorned, he was scourged. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns that was pressed down upon his head. The very people Jesus came to save were judging him in these three hours when the light was shining. But listen, at noon, when the darkness fell, something turned. Now, some skeptics have tried to explain away this uh, miracle of God by arguing it was just a lunar eclipse. But I don't know if you know this, the longest lasting lunar eclipse that's ever been recorded is less than nine minutes. And in all of the gospel accounts and extra biblical literature as well, this is recorded as being three hours. 
In addition to that, the Jewish people operated off of a lunar calendar, and they only celebrated Passover at full moon cycles, making this element of darkness a scientific impossibility to be explained away as merely a lunar eclipse. But regardless of the historicity of this event, and the miracle of the darkness falling over the entirety of the land itself, I think it finds its greatest significance in Israel's own history. And here's why. I don't know how many of you remember that Israel, uh, at one point in their history, uh, suffered from about 400 years of Egyptian oppression as slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Well, God raised up a man named Moses. Last night, we watched the Ten Commandments with my kids. Charlton Heston does a great uh, job with that. And so uh, God raised up a man named Moses to deliver his people from, uh, from Pharaoh and from the 400 years of Egyptian uh, captivity. And, and the way God did this work to try to get Pharaoh's heart to turn uh, was by invoking uh, plagues upon the Egyptian people as a sampling of a greater judgment that God would have to bring. The ninth plague that Moses ushered in to the, all, to the entire land of Egypt was darkness for three days. Do you know what the tenth plague was that ultimately caused Pharaoh to let God's people go? It was the death of the firstborn son that was not covered under the blood of a sacrificial spotless lamb. Now listen, don't you think that's significant? That Jesus is hanging on Calvary's cross and darkness falls for three hours. The Egyptian people have kept Israel in captivity for 400 years and darkness falls for three days. Here's why. Because when Jesus is facing this final judgment for sin, the sky falls dark not because he's being judged by men. That was done in the daylight. But because he was being judged by God. So if you ever want to know, listen, how serious does God take my sin? It demanded darkness. It demanded how... How dark are we? Well, the sky fell when God judged Jesus for what you and I have done. This is why, listen, in this agonizing moment as Jesus is hanging on Calvary's cross and he cries out, quoting from King David in Psalm chapter 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which literally means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this moment of transparent agony where Jesus actually utters a term of endearment if you can believe it do you know why Jesus would utter to his God this incredible term of endearment as he is agonizing in this moment on Calvary's cross because for the very first time in eternity's past Jesus is separated from God for our sin so that for the very first time since the fall and sin was introduced into creation, you and I could be reunited with God instead. This is the moment where God made him who knew no sin to become our sin so that in him we might be called the righteousness of God. It is in this moment, listen, and this is the reason it demanded darkness, because our sin is an offense against God's holiness. There's a debt that has been accrued for what you and I have done. All the wrong we've done and the evidence being the anxiety that we feel because of it is an evidence that there is a separation 
that exist. And in this moment, when the darkness fell, and Jesus Christ is taking that punishment for, for us. Keep reading. This is the power of the cross. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered and cried with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, you may not know this, but because God began unveiling this plan of redemption, even in the Old Testament, one of the ways in which he wanted to show his people that there would need to be a payment for the wages of their sin, and that would be death, was that he instituted something called the sacrificial system. God even had his people construct a temple or a place of worship whereby these sacrifices that must be made uh, could actually take uh, take place. But in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was a temporary placeholder of sorts. God allowed for uh, his people to sacrifice uh, bulls and goats and lambs as a temporary stay, ultimately acknowledging that there would one day become a final payment which was due. I don't know how many of you have ever borrowed money, but the way in which a bank or a lender uh, uh, makes income is that they charge interest. So if you borrow money, then the bank will charge you interest. And if you only pay the interest, then you're never actually satisfying any of the debt that you actually owe. All you're doing is delaying the inevitable, which is that at some point that debt is going to need to be satisfied. That balance must be paid. Listen, the sacrificial system that God had given to his people in the Old Testament was interest payments. Jesus is the only one that was able to pay the debt in full. And it's important that we recognize this because John's gospel records that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last, he screamed one word in Aramaic, tetelestai. It's an accounting term. It actually means paid in full. It would have been used by uh, uh, accountants or uh, people who kept up with a treasury to help understand how to reconcile an account between uh, uh, debits and, and credits. And when Jesus uh, cried out with a loud voice, and the Bible says that the curtain was torn in two, he said, it's paid off. What was owed for sin has been paid. And the second miracle that gets recorded is that the temple uh, had a veil that veil separated the most holy area of the temple uh, from the other areas of the temple. It was a, a, a very visual uh, symbol of a very spiritual uh, reality. You see, the entirety of the temple and the worship uh, a setup that God had given for his people to know was so that they might see the separation that sin has caused between God and his holiness and man and his sinfulness. That's why there was the Holy of Holies, this place where only the high priest would go once a year to make sacrifices to God. Then there was the outer court, the court of the priests, and then there was the court of the men, and then there was the uh, court of the women, and then there was the court of the Gentiles. It was this entire uh, visual reminder that our sin has separate us, separated us from our Creator God. And the temple veil was the last visual reminder of that great reality. 
And so the Bible says that that veil in that moment when Jesus cried out that it's paid off. It tore from the top to the bottom. Here's the significance of that. I think there's two things. The first is the Bible doesn't say that the veil just tore. It says that it was torn. This was an action that was done by someone. I have five uh, children, and sometimes I think I have six. Uh, Because when I come home and I ask, why does the house look like this? Everybody will say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I didn't have a kid named I don't know, but apparently that's who everyone is blaming, okay? There was an action that created this chaos. It didn't just take place. Well, listen, there was an action that tore that curtain. It didn't just take place. Place. The Bible says that the veil was torn. This was literally the finger of God. And, and the other thing that the scholars make sure we know is that it was torn from the top to the bottom. It is the good and right reminder that we don't get to God, but rather God has come to us. Listen, here's the temptation, especially every Easter. The temptation is for you and I to want to say, you know what, I just got to get my life back together. I just got to get my life back on track. I just need to get back into church. I just need to make my marriage my priority. Listen, all those things are good and right. And to that, I would say yes and amen. But if you are trusting in yourself to do that work, then let me love you well enough this Sunday morning to tell you, you will fail and frustrate yourself and others around you in the process of trying. We don't clean ourselves up to get to God. The good news of the gospel is that God has Come to us, and then he will clean us up. That's why the veil was torn from top to bottom, and Jesus cried out to tell us die. This is not a work that we can do. It is a work that God has done. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Romans 5, 8 would say that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you grateful that Jesus didn't look down from heaven and say, you know what? She's had a pretty good Saturday. I think I'm going to die for her sins now. That, you didn't have a good Saturday. That's not true. I'm not even married to you and I know that. Listen, we don't deserve his death. This is what makes the gospel such a scandal. Is that God has done a work for us that we could not do for ourselves. I remember just a few years ago uh, when I bought my truck. Uh, Mary and I, I love my truck. It's a great truck. White Chevy, four-wheel drives, bad, I'm telling you. And, and I had to borrow money to buy it. And I remember uh, at the end of the year, uh, just a few years ago, uh, Mary and I had a little extra money, and I was going to pay the truck off. And uh, so I called the bank and said, hey, uh, I'd, I'd like to make uh, the payment on the truck. What's the balance? And he's like, oh, you want to make a payment? Uh, and I was like, no. No I, no, I don't want to make a payment. I want to make the payment, right? I mean, I, I, want to pay, I want to pay this thing off. And so he was like, okay, well, here's the balance that is owed, and you can come by any one of our uh, offices today, and, and you can satisfy that debt in, in full. And that's, a, that's exactly, it, listen, that was a good feeling. Do you understand that for the sin debt which you and I have accrued, Because again, the sin is the one common thing among all of us. And the anxiety in our heart is the evidence we know that it's true. Jesus Christ is the one who has satisfied that debt. When the curtain was torn and the sky grew dark, Jesus cried out to tell us die. 
It is the greatest evidence that he has done a work of God that you and I could not do in and of ourselves. And listen, how, how do we know? How do we know that this is true? Well, because about 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday morning, some women who were the disciples of Jesus and followers of his from the beginning, they went to pay their respects at the tomb early on that Sunday morning. The Bible says that when they went to the tomb, that they found that the stone had been rolled away. They were alarmed because there was an angel in bright white. And the angel saw them and said, do not be alarmed. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. But he isn't here. He is alive. He is risen. Look at where they laid him down. Listen, family, I want you to know that Jesus died on Calvary's cross for our sin. And he rose from the grave as the proof positive that he alone could make the payment for it. The empty tomb is the greatest receipt that's ever been granted for the greatest debt that's ever been owed. The empty tomb gives you and I hope that God can breathe new life into your marriage. The empty tomb gives us hope that God can breathe new life into your hopelessness, that he can breathe new life into your disease, that God can breathe new life into your anxiety and into your depression and that battleground in the six inches between your ears. You see, because when I had that conversation with that banker a few years ago, I said, well, okay, when I make the payment, what can I expect in return? Like, how, how will I know? And he said, well, we'll give you some paperwork today when you submit this final payment that says that the debt itself has been satisfied. But then watch the mail because in a few weeks we're going to send you the title. And with that title, you'll have a receipt. And you will know that the debt you owed has been paid. And then everything you thought you still needed to do has been satisfied. Listen, Easter weekend is the receipt. The empty tomb is the greatest evidence and reminder that Jesus Christ has paid a debt that you and I owed. And the fact that he is alive today is proof positive. He holds the title to your life and to mine that says the work is done to tell us die. It is finished. I have done it. The grave is empty. And so I can do a work in you that you could not do for yourself. And to trust in anything less than that is to assure yourself of failure. So, if I could be honest though, here's what I see most often. Especially where we live. Like in the Bible Belt. What I see most often is brothers and sisters trying to finance their salvation. Like we're trying to pay on that sin debt instead of trusting Jesus who's paid it off. So we say, well, I'm going to go to church a little bit. I'm going to make a payment. I'll go to, I'm going to give money to a charitable cause. I'm going to make a payment. I'm going to do right. I'm going to stop cussing and 
Start paying closer attention to what I watch. Make sure that my addiction doesn't have that much control. I'm going to make a payment. Man, your salvation can't be financed. Jesus Christ has paid the debt in full. The question is whether or not you're going to continue to make these vain attempts to try to pacify God as though he is a lender that you can keep at bay. You see, because the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ is alive, then your marriage can be restored. Your addiction can be overcome. Your depression and anxiety no longer have to win. Why? Because the proof is that the tomb is empty and it evidences that the debt has been paid. So I want to beg you this morning, if you're here and you feel like your life has just been one payment after another, that let Tetelestai ring true for you. Let the God of the universe do for you that which only He can do and surrender, give your life to Jesus Christ. You know, you ask the question, okay, so what does that mean? How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, the Bible does the heavy lifting for us. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You'll be saved. You'll be saved. It says, because with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there's two things we must do in order to receive this payment in full. The first is confess Jesus. The second is believe Jesus. Let's take them one at a time. Confess Jesus. What does that mean? That means to acknowledge who you are and then confess that Jesus is the only hope to fix it. I confess I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from God. The anxiousness I feel that we giggle about and some which we don't is proof positive that this is true. And I confess that Jesus Christ is Savior. And I believe that he is the only one who can deliver me from my sin. He's the only one that can satisfy the debt that I owe. And then what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, believing in Jesus is simply making true in your heart what it is you've said with your mouth. So it's electing to transfer the hope that you have in yourself or sometimes even in our circumstance and put that faith in the person and yes, in this finished work of Jesus Christ. So it's confess and believe. And listen, what's the promise? Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you remember the condition that we all find ourselves to be in? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the one commonality in this room and in the overflow room as well. The only way to overcome that all is with the everyone of Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So all who have sinned and fallen short might be saved when we call on the name of Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand in regard to your relationship with God, you can leave here today with an absolute assurance of that. So I'm going to invite you now, if you would, just to close your eyes and bow your head in the overflow room as well. Just where you are. And if this morning, for the first time in your life, or for the first time that you know it to be true, 
want to ask God to forgive you of your sin and to grant you eternal life so that, listen, we might be united with God as he intended. And that separation can be no more. Then if that's you, I'm going to invite you just to pray in your mind and in your heart something like this. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. And God, I am confessing that Jesus Christ is the only hope who can forgive me of that. And I am choosing by faith to believe in the life, death, burial, and yes, the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin and give me everlasting life with you. This is the belief and the confession I'm making to you today. Listen, if you have made that for the very first time or today is the first time that it rings true and you are asking God to save you from your sin, then I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Just right where you are, I'm going to ask you if you would just to slip your hand up. Everybody's eyes are closed. Everybody's head is bowed. I'm going to ask you if you would. If you're making that profession of faith and asking God to save you from your sin, then I'm going to ask you right where you are just to slip your hand up. In the overflow room as well, I see you. Just slip your hand up. You're not alone. I see you. Just keep your hand up. I see you. Okay, listen. If you have held your hand up, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and just look up at me. If you had your hand up, everybody else has got their heads down. If you had your hand up, just look up here at me for a second. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to sing and to respond. And the one thing I can assure you is, is if God has spoken to you today, then this decision is not something that he wants you to make in isolation. He does not, God doesn't want you to be separated anymore. And one of the ways in which he comes alongside you and closes that gap is through the brothers and sisters of his church that love you and want to walk alongside of you. And so in just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to sing and to respond. And I'm going to invite you, when we stand up, others will start to move. And you come and grab the hand of one of our uh, decision encouragers. And we would love to pray with you about what God has done. Okay? Others of you that are here today, you just need prayer. This Easter, what you need God to do is a new life in your marriage. You need a new life in your home. You need a new life in your uh, career. You need God to breathe life into uh, your parenting. You need God to breathe life over an addiction. You need God to breathe life over your mental health battles. I don't know what it is you're struggling with, but the resurrection is the proof positive that God alone can do that. And so if you're here today and you need prayer this Easter morning, don't leave without letting us do that. These same decision encouragers that are going to walk with the men and women who have made professions of faith would love to pray with you about whatever it is that is burdening you. And so in just a moment, when we have this opportunity to respond, the invitation is for anyone in this room who has heard the voice of God today, you come and let us have a conversation with you. God is speaking to you. I promise you that. He is speaking to you today. And the temptation to want to stay seated or to ignore what God is doing, listen, it isn't the same voice that told you to respond that is telling you to stay seated. And so you got to decide which one you're going to listen to. And so I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to have an opportunity for a joyful celebration. 
Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. God, I pray as we enter into this time of worship and response, the celebration would be honest, the decisions would be real, and that we would be reminded that you have done a work for us we could not do for ourselves. We love you. We trust you. And therefore, it is our faith in you that causes us to ask this from you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen.